This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to have kind of an eclectic show, I think, today, because uh, yours truly was gone a lot of last week, visiting the Big Apple. I do hope that uh, some of the adventures on the East Coast will translate into some good radio later on this very program. If it fails to do so, it'll be because I didn't tell it right. Because some adventures were had. At any rate, we may have a guest on today's show, we may not. I'm not sure how, you know, we just, sometimes we're never quite sure how the show's going to evolve. But we shall make do, as we like to do, by starting off with, on this date in history. Our date in question is the 5th of July. It was on July 5th in 1295, and I never heard about this one, when Scotland and France signed the Auld Alliance against England, making this one of the world's oldest mutual defense treaties. I'm not sure that panned out very well, however, since Scotland joined together with England in something like 1715 to become Great Britain. And speaking of England, on July 5th in 1687, the Royal Society in England published Isaac Newton's Principia, one of the most important publications in the history of science, some would say in the history of the world. It states Newton's three laws of motion and the universal law of gravitation. In the wake of Newton's magnum opus, nothing was ever quite the same. Which is why in one of our favorite books in this program, The 100, a list of the most influential persons in history, Author Michael Hart ranked Newton number two. And to the consternation of Christians everywhere, ahead of Jesus Christ, who was number three. Who was number one? I think we'll save that to the end of the segment. On July 5th of 1933, Fritz Tott was appointed General Inspector for German Highways and was assigned to build a comprehensive Autobahn system. The Autobahns became the envy of the industrialized world and a source of both anxiety and awe for Europeans. It was also, of course, the direct predecessor of America's interstate highway system. The Autobahn was revolutionary in having no stop signs or stop signals or very few impediments to travel. In America, we call them freeways. And Mr. McMillan, I think we need some appropriate music for this next item. July 5th in 1942, Ian Fleming becomes the first graduate of a training school for spies in Canada known as Special 25. This training would later prove invaluable for the creation of his fictional spy, Bond, James Bond. And on July 5th in 1951, English-born William Shockley, working at Bell Telephone Labs, announces the invention of the junction transistor. The invention heralded a revolution in radio, television, and computer circuitry. Of course, the truth is, Shockley really didn't invent the transistor. His models didn't work very well, but when some of his co-workers came up with one that did, he horned in on the credit. There's a lot of stories about Shockley out there. I think my personal favorite, which earned him an award from Esquire magazine in its Dubious Achievements of the Year section, came in the wake of Shockley joining a Nobel Prize winner's sperm bank. And someone uh, pointed out to Shockley that none of his children, his actual genetic offspring, had, had achieved any major accomplishments in their life. Shockley, of course, blamed it on his wife, earning him an award from Esquire as Father of the Year. 
I think it more properly should have been husband of the year, but I won't quibble. And our quote of the day comes from the former French leader Georges Pompidou, who once said, There are three roads to ruin. Women, gambling, and technicians. The most pleasant is with women. The quickest is with gambling. But the surest is with technicians. Our quote of the day comes from author Tom Stoppard, who said, I think age is a very high price to pay for maturity. And our joke of the day, which was sent to us by Millie. And yes, if you will send us jokes and other things, we'd be happy to use them on this program. Please send those to info at radioparallax.com. As did Millie with the following. Snow White, Superman, and Pinocchio were walking down the street. They pass a sign that says, Are you the fairest in the land? Snow White says, Hold on a second, boys. I think this is meant for me. She comes out a half hour later. They say, did you win? She said, yes, I did. They walk a little further. A sign says, are you the strongest man in the world? Superman goes, I think this one has my name on it. Hold on. Comes out a half hour later. They said, did you win? He says, in fact, I did. They walk a little further. There's a sign that says, are you the world's biggest liar? Pinocchio says, hold on, guys. I'll be right back. He comes out a half hour later, crestfallen, tears in his eyes. They ask, what happened? Pinocchio goes, who's this Romney guy? All right, we're going to have three stats for today's program, some good, some bad, starting with stat number one, which is 98%, which is apparently what billionaire Larry Ellison now owns of Hawaii's sixth largest island, Lanai. Evidently, the Oracle CEO paid about $500 million for 98% of Lanai, which is 140 square miles, or about three times the size of the city of San Francisco. Yes, and how it is a billionaire is allowed to own 98% of a Hawaiian island, well, that's just a, that's just a cruel twist of fate and demonstration that uh, there's something wrong with the world. I think this is especially true if you've heard any stories about Larry Ellison. And in fact, we have, but we're not going to share them today. Stat number two from YouGov.com. Apparently, 63% of Republicans still say they believe Iraq, in fact, had weapons of mass destruction when the U.S. invaded in 2003. Among those Republicans who say Iraq had WMDs, 64% of them believe President Obama was born in another country. Of course, we would point out it's entirely possible that these same Republicans believe that Hawaii is part of a different country, which, which would certainly explain their confusion. Maybe it'll take a billionaire like uh, Larry Ellison to explain this to them. And finally, some good news in stat number three, which is, according to the Wall Street Journal, that only 55% of 2011 law school graduates managed to find a full-time, long-term job, which, in fact, requires a law degree. That's at least within nine months of their graduating. Why is this good news, you ask? Well, stay tuned. Of course, in conjunction with that item, I would quote, uh, I'm not sure who it was that said this, but we've used it on the show before, and we're going to use it again. And the quote is that one lawyer in a town will starve, but two can earn a pretty good living. Of course, in America, with 
80% of the world's lawyers, despite having 4% of the world's population, they do indeed earn a good living. And on that note, let's pop into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for having it all. After Clark and Sharon Winslow of Belvedere, California, which is that little island right off of Tiburon in Marin County, where the Winslows spent $4.2 million to buy the house next door and demolish it. It turns out that home was partially obstructing their $19 million home's view of San Francisco Bay. Anyway, it was a bad week last week for having it all after the latest World Wealth Report found that the world's millionaires' combined wealth fell by 1.7% in 2011, which is the first decline for high net worth individuals since the 2008 global economic crisis. Yes, apparently the world's millionaires did okay in 08, 09, and 10, but did see a 1.7% drop-off in 2011. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for Jerry Sandusky, who was taunted by inmates after he was locked into his cell at the Center County Correction Facility following his conviction for child molestation. Borrowing a line from Pink Floyd's The Wall, the inmates apparently sang, Hey, teacher, leave those kids alone. Yes, we suspect at Radio Parallax that Mr. Sandusky's in for a bit of a rough ride in the correctional facility, and you know what? He's got it coming. Of course, when I offer up that opinion, I have to point out that it, like all the opinions heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. Well, frankly, we're not sure where any of those entities stand on the Jerry Sandusky issue. But we do hope they're with us. All right, speaking of lawyers, as we were a moment ago, let's go to our... America's disgrace of a legal system file for the following two items, which don't even involve our Supreme Court. But remember, these items actually come from the Only in America file from The Week magazine, but I I think a description of them coming from America's disgrace of a legal system is more appropriate. Item number one, Georgia police officer William Martinez, age 31, had a fatal heart attack in 2009 while he and a male friend were having sex with a woman in a motel room. A jury has now awarded his widow $3 million because doctors should have warned Martinez, who had a heart condition, to avoid strenuous activity, said the widow's lawyer. This man could have died running on the treadmill. Well, that is true. This man, in fact, died having sex in a hotel room with a couple people. Must we doctors cover every contingency? I think not. But you know, as a public service announcement, (laughs) let me state the following. If you or any of your loved ones have a heart condition, we strongly counsel you to consult your physician before you have group sex in a hotel room. And we have item number two. A New Jersey woman hit by a baseball at a Little League game is suing 
the 11-year-old player who threw it. Spectator Elizabeth Lloyd wants catcher Matthew Milglaccio to pay her $150,000, arguing that his errant warm-up throw was, quote, reckless, unquote. Said the boy's father, the whole thing has almost been surreal. We keep thinking it's just going to go away. Almost been surreal? We look up surreal. I'm pretty darn sure that's got to qualify. Anyway, speaking of the legal system and Jerry Sandusky, which we were on both counts a moment ago, turns out that recent emails released show that that in 2001, in the wake of former assistant coach Mike McQuarrie catching Sandusky anally raping a child in the locker room showers and alerting Joe Paterno that he'd seen something sexual, well, those emails which came to light show that university officials told each other it would be, quote, humane, unquote, not to turn Sandusky over to police. Well, yeah, it might be humane for Sandusky, but we'd have to take the viewpoint that it probably wasn't so humane for the boys being anally raped. Did I do the disclaimer? Yes. Okay. At any rate, well, we don't normally promote television on this program, given our dim view of the boob tube. There are a couple items that I think are worthy of mention this coming week. First off, next Monday, July 9th, one of our favorite films, Idiocracy, will be appearing on television on the IFC channel. If you've not caught Idiocracy before, this might be your chance. The premise, of course, is that an average Joe, played by Luke Wilson, awakes from hibernation in the year 2505 to a society so debased that he is now the smartest man alive. And tonight, apparently, this Thursday, 10 p.m., PBS will be showing POV, The City Dark. Apparently, when filmmaker and amateur astronomer Ian Cheney moved from rural Maine to New York City, he could no longer see stars in the night sky. In this award-winning documentary, he interviews experts about the effects of light pollution, both on animals that have their navigation instincts disrupted, and on humans, whose health does seem to be compromised by overexposure to artificial light. Now, uh, this correspondent was on the top of the rock a week and a half ago, Rockefeller Center, 60-something stories up. It is, to be sure, a spectacular view. Now, somehow Rockefeller Center, when you see those skylines in New York, it gets sort of glossed over because it just doesn't have that, that prominent spire of the Chrysler Building or the Empire State Building or the soon-to-be-finished Freedom Tower. But it is a spectacular view that is world-class. And uh, while up on the top of the rock, uh, this correspondent did, in fact, notice that there were very few stars visible. You can make out Mars, Saturn, the brightest of the stars, the first magnitude, and a couple of the brightest second magnitude stars. Perhaps 20 or 30 in all, at best. Light pollution is becoming a serious problem in our cities, and uh, we'll be talking about it in this, in this show, as we've done in the past. And although we normally do obituaries in our third segment, there is one I do want to cite at this juncture, which would be the passing of Lonesome George. He was the last Galapagos tortoise of his kind. He was from Pinta Island, the only one they could find when they went to Pinta Island. He passed away last week at the relatively young age of 100. Lonesome George, it is said, rarely attempted to mate. They were trying to cross him with some of the other Galapagos tortoises to keep his gene pool going. But uh, no go, no offspring. They have, however, saved his DNA, hoping that they will be able to make use of it in the future. Of course, uh, according to 
Ira Flato's program, Science Friday, we're a long way from being able to clone reptiles. For some reason, mammals are easier. So maybe a long time before we see any more of Lonesome George. And we moved him up to segment one today because, well, I, I believe, I'm not positive about this, but I believe I got to spend part of a morning with Lonesome George. The story is, back in 1988, after some boneheaded maneuvers in the Andes Mountains, for which I got frostbite on every finger, I decided to reward myself by a trip to the Galapagos Islands, which was an adventure in itself, but to make a long story short, I did go down to the um, station, the scientific station, where some of the Galapagos tortoises were penned on, on the island, I think it was on the largest town in the Galapagos Islands. And uh, yes, remarkably enough, there was... No secure enclosure, keeping tourists like myself from mingling with the giant tortoises, so mingle I did. I got some really outstanding photographs of these, uh, these, these marvelous creatures, and it was, just, it was just great hanging with them. Mr. McMillan says he may try to get some of those photographs up on the site, the site being radioparallax.com, and we'll see what we can do about that. But I'll tell you one thing. They may not be able to talk, but Galapagos tortoises make better company than a lot of people I can mention. And no, in response to a question from Mr. McMillan, I did not try to ride on the tortoises. Aww. That would be wrong in just so many ways. Let's talk a bit more about animals. In this case, horses. In this case, Mitt Romney's horse. Mr. McMillan? A horse is a horse, of course, of course. And no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Red. Go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always... No, Mitt Romney did not own Mr. Ed, but he does own a horse called Rofalca, which uh, is involved in this Olympic sport of dressage. I must confess I'm quite ignorant about this alleged sport. But from what I can see, people wear top hats, get on their horse, and the horse dances. And no, I have no explanation for why that is an Olympic sport. But oddly enough, apparently Rofalca has qualified for the Olympics. Apparently some people criticized Ann Romney for claiming that the, the dressage, sometimes called horse ballet, was actually therapy for her multiple sclerosis, even though her family writes the horse off as a business rather than health expense. Some horse lovers, I guess, took exception to this, uh, which prompted a response from TheAtlantic.com saying, no one's criticizing Ann Romney for riding horses. We're making fun of the infinite goofiness of dressage, a sport in which horses perform stylized dance routines to Muzak versions of Carpenter's songs. Adding, when rich people put on top hats and prance around on dancing horses, you get to mock them. Here's the part I like best. Apparently the Romneys have declared $78,000 in passive tax losses on Rofalca, which, of course, they can deduct from any money the mayor generates in the future. Noted Aaron Gloria Ryan in Jezebel.com. That is a bit galling, considering that a mere human child gets only a $1,000 tax credit. This also prompted Slate.com to sound off, noting that Romney has pledged to eliminate some tax deductions if elected, well, and horse-related expenses might be a good place to start. Even, of course, if it does hurt the critical dressage sector of the U.S. economy. I think we need to take a short break. And the answer to the question of the number one person selected by Michael Hart in his most influential persons in history. Well, if you thought Muhammad, 
might have earned Mr. Hart's respect as the most influential person in history, well, you'd have been on the money. And just as a brief aside, why Muhammad ahead of Isaac Newton and Jesus? Hart reasoned that while the world has more Christians than Muslims, the founding of Christianity owes a great deal to St. Paul, whom he ranked sixth on the list. And Muhammad earned extra points for not only being the founder of the world's, I guess, second most popular religions, but he was also a smashing success in the secular world as a political leader. And you know what? I don't know, I don't know how to get out of Muhammad and go to a break because we mean no disrespect to Islam. I think we've got to do one more item, though. Hold on. Let's see. All right, here's an item that is making this correspondent sweat. I hope this never comes about. But, unfortunately, the Nicaraguan government is making noises about linking the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans with a new canal through Central America that would be wider and deeper than the Panama Canal. Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega submitted the proposal to Nicaraguan lawmakers last week offering six possible routes for the $13 billion project. The government is hoping that shipping fees could bring much-needed revenue to Nicaragua, considered the, the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. The reason I hope this never comes to pass is that Lake Nicaragua is one of the jewels of Central America. If they want to carve a giant shipping path through that country, they're going to use Lake Nicaragua and trust me on this one, this would be a great, great tragedy. So we will keep our, uh, our eyes on that news item. Not that we're going to necessarily be able to influence Nicaraguan legislators, but if any of you are listening, see if you can't go to the, 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 the canal zone in Panama and get Uncle Sam to pay you some bribes. Which, by the way, I think does give us some excellent outro music. <laughs> listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. There's plenty more. Stay tuned. <laughs>